Hey, hey everyone, back again. Now we're on episode eight, my episode eight, of Marx's Capital, volume three. And this is going to pick off from chapter 30, 41, sorry, chapter 41, and we'll proceed all the way up to chapter 46, excluding chapter 46. Uh, so yeah, before jumping into it, make sure if you've happened to stumble on this to go check out the previous episodes or else you'll be very confused. And you can find, if you're curious, uh, you'll see in the episode description what is covered in each chapter for future reference or in case you want to remind yourself what this chapter, this episode is going to be uh, discussing. Also, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here on this Instagram or Twitter, you can find links for those things in the description if you're at all interested in that. You can help me out mostly by sharing, share, 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 tell your friends, like the video. Um, you can, if you can leave a review on a podcast platform you found this on, that would be great too. Uh, you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. Please take care of yourself first. And um, yeah, so here we're on to chapter 41, where we're going to look at specific cases of differential rent uh, or the cost of rent changing depending on the amount of capital actually invested, which is just taking David Ricardo's work way further than he ever did. So uh, if you don't happen to remember, I'll just be very brief about David Ricardo's thesis. Best land to worst land. Worst land is going to set the prices of the goods or else it couldn't compete. Worst land is also going to pay no rent because there's no surplus, there's no extra that can come out of what is made. If there was extra, then new lands would be cultivated. Whereas best land is not going to be able to set the price, but they're going to be able to extract a lot of surplus value, which means they're going to be paying lots of rent. So rent is only going to come out of the better lands and not the worst land. And that was Ricardo's thesis in a nutshell. So here with chapter 41 titled Differential Rent 2, he's going to look at a situation in which the price of production remains constant. So remember with Differential Rent 2, we're referring to lands that have been applied different amounts of capital and labor, where one land is probably allocated a lot of labor or a lot of capital and what that does to rent. So let's imagine that the price of production remains constant. So here he provides charts to show that any increase of capital investment on rent, on rent bearing land, will yield surplus profit. So what this means in other words is that if you invest more capital on your land in terms of like better machines, you're going to earn more profit naturally just because you have better equipment. But the amount of profit actually earned will come in declining proportion to the increase in capital. And this is just the tendential, the, the law of the tendential fall in the rate of profit in other terms, because you're going to be investing more, more constant capital put into it, into any industry, and your profit rate is going to come down because it's going to cost more money for you to actually uh, cover the costs of all that constant capital. So in this case, absolute rent will increase because there is more profit. So your profit's going up, but also the amount of capital you're investing is going up, which means that your profit rate is probably going to be coming down because it's not going to go up higher than the amount that you're spending on capital. So this means that more and more rent is also going to be taken out of your uh, what you're, you're making in that industry, which means 
uh, that this is happening not in proportion to an additional capital invested. So in the exact same way, as your profit rate is going to go up, but goes up at a lower rate than the amount that you are investing, your rent that you have to pay is going to go up, but at a lesser rate or at a greater rate. No, sorry, still at a lesser rate than the amount of capital that you are investing. Now, this is that he just says this is due to the falling rate of the falling, uh, the law of the falling rate of profit. So again, this whole chapter here is referring to a situation in which production prices remain the same. So he shows that as long as production prices remain the same, as more capital is invested, signaling growth, because you're able to actually expand your industry without having to spend more just to meet the same demand, you're able to actually able to grow, rent is going to increase. The amount of capital invested will affect how much it goes up. So if you invest a lot of capital, it means that your profit's going to go up, again, not as, not as fast as the amount you've invested in capital, which means that also because your profit has gone up, your rent's going to go up. Now, the difference between differential rent one and differential rent two, where differential rent one is referring to different cases of fertility between different lands, differential rent two is referring to situations where one land just has had more a longer history of capital being invested into it. He says that the distinction between the two is that differential rent one refers to an investment in tandem with the introduction of new land because new land needs to be discovered or, or needs to be taken up to meet a demand. Differential rent two refers to the same quantity of land being more intensely worked, where you know more of the land is used more, um, more economically or workers are made to work even more, uh, even harder, or the machines are just better able to actually dig up more corn and then grow more in, in a very quick succession and or whatever but you're able to actually extract more from the same plot of land, whereas in differential rent one, we're referring to a situation where there needs to be outward expansion. Now, in the case of differential rent two, where you're gonna be working on the same land, what that means is that the price per acre is going to go up. Or really, you know, the, the rent per acre is gonna go up. Whereas with differential rent one, the addition of new land will split these additional profits where you know it might be another capitalist that's going and actually pursuing this new land. And that means that, let's say, uh, you know, you were the first capitalist on the best land. Somebody else, a few years down the line, has to go and pursue some really bad land. What this means is that this first person has done nothing more, they've introduced new, no new land, yet their rent has gone up because likely their profit rate has gone up. And of course, if profit is the motive here, we're going to run into some difficulties because there's only so much land that can be cultivated to actually grow uh, goods. But that's, you know, he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about that here. So then he moves into chapter 42, differential rent two, the second case where the prices of production are not constant, but instead are falling. So if the prices of production, instead of remaining constant, they fall, it will become easier to invest on good land to meet the demand. So it might become super cheap to introduce a new piece of machinery that is going to make it so that the first lands, the best lands, are able to actually meet the demand. 
Now that might produce a situation in which that worst land is now superfluous. You don't need it anymore. We don't need to be working on that bad land because we have the technique now and we have with the, or the capital now to make the first land even more efficient. Like new machines that are able to distribute seed quicker, uh, you know, any number of things or like more cheaply, whatever. So in such a case, it's possible that rent might come down because the prices of production have come down, which means that you're investing less, which means that you're probably going to be earning less profit, which means that probably you're going to need to pay less to the landlord. Now, of course, this is all just fairy dust. No landlord is going to say, oh, well, you're earning less. Let me just bring down these costs, this cost of rent. But in, you know, that's just... We don't live in a magic world. Of course, we have to remember the world we do live in. So let's imagine the situation, though, where the price of rent did come down. Uh, or let's say it stayed the same. And less land was worked on because those worst lands became superfluous. They weren't needed anymore. That would mean that the price per acre of all the land has actually gone up in terms of rent. Just because there's now less land now, and that less land is representing the same amount of rent, total rent. But there are other factors to consider. So it's possible that that land won't become superfluous. Like let's say a new market is discovered and some capitalist is like, oh, well, we can actually be competitive uh, if we just work on this bad land or we're going to actually be able to give that um, those goods or sell those goods to this market over here because they really want it. They don't mind that they're going to be paying extra for this good. Like maybe they just really like corn, whatever. They're willing to pay that extra that it would cost to work on this bad land to meet this new demand. Now, if such a situation were to arise, Marx kind of asks, he asks, well, in that case, would that worst land then yield rent? Because it's suddenly able to make more profit, it is actually able to earn enough that it can allocate some money away from what it just takes to keep the industry going, plus the necessary profit for the capitalist. Marx says no. And simply because all the other capitalists, all the other farmers aren't just going to sit around and say, hey, uh, Billy, you own the worst land over there. Uh, good job finding that new market. Have fun. No, all the other capitalists are going to say, wait, I want a piece of that market and I'm going to be able to sell for cheaper. Uh, I, I don't need to spend as much to make my land good to sell. So then it's just going to enter into the equation as well of the total, um, our total schema here, our total schematic of the variations in the cost of rent from best to worst land. Even if new markets are discovered or if uh, the worst land is somehow able to earn a little more money because it's all going to be a relative phenomenon. Now that puts us here into chapter 43, titled Differential Rent 2, the third case. Now this is a situation in which the prices of production have actually gone up. So they aren't constant, they aren't falling, but they're going up. Now simply, if the cost of production has gone up, that means the yield of the worst land is probably going to go down because it's going to cost more to actually do what maybe historically the worst land was able to do in terms of yield but because the cost has gone up, they are then not able to actually put as much labor into motion to give that same yield. So there might be a decline 
in the yield, which which would be a problem if that worst land was necessary to meet the demand of the people to, to really stay, for them to stay alive. And again, he stresses that all of this, this idea of the most fertile land to the worst fertile land or land with more capital invested on it versus less capital also applies to mining. So if there's a mine that is super fertile with gold, fertile, you know, has a there's an abundance of gold, it's resplendent, uh, that is going to yield the most rent versus the one that yields uh, the is the le least resplendent. And that's going to yield no rent. Or the same applies with the amount of capital. Like if there's a mine that already has all the infrastructure, all the mining equipment there, the landlord can definitely charge more if a new capitalist comes along for whatever reason, the other capitalist left or was, wasn't interested. Uh, and the same would apply here. So anyways, I digress. So if the prices go up, like I said, on the worst land, it's going to yield less. And that's going to obviously have an effect on the entire market. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, we get a little bit of Engels's perspective here. Or rather, he gives us a formula to calculate the rate of increase of rent from the worst or from the best to the worst land or worst to the best increase in rent. So the worst land yields no rent. So it's just zero, assuming that this is, of course, correct. Now, this isn't totally important, but he just gives us this formula. He says, let's say the worst land is land A better land B, C, and then the best land is D. So it goes from A to D. So A is zero. Let's say B yields one rent. C yields two rent. And D, the best land, yields three rent. That would mean then that B is just A plus one, whereas C is A plus two, whereas uh, D would be A plus three, or B could be seen as uh, I guess A plus 1, C could be seen as B plus 1, and D could be seen as C plus 1. Or, and it's kind of, it's kind of stupid, but, or D could be seen as uh, B plus C. Or we could think of it in another way, we could think of B as being N plus 1, or C, and C being N plus 2, and D equal being N plus 3. Whatever, the, the point here that he wants to get across is that you should think of it as a series. And it is a, there's a steady progression in the series. So here Engels reevaluates all the tables that Marx that I mentioned in the last episode put together in the previous chapters because they they were misleading, but not technically incorrect. So the main criticism that Engels offers is that Marx saw rent as the result of absolute yields rather than as an indicator of the relative differences in yields. So, I don't know, so land D, the best land, might yield more, absolutely, than land A, the worst land. But it might only yield like two extra bushels of apples than the worst land. So here, all Engels does is, he, and I'm not going to go through each table because that would take forever, he just revamps the tables in order to think of it rather as uh, a comparison between the yields of each land than just saying that they just yield more or that rent is just more. Now, additionally, Engels demonstrates, and he just shows this with evidence, that in most cases, like in the, if there's a fall in the price of production or an increase in labor or an increased productivity, the rent increased in all of these cases. 
The only time where rent didn't increase was in situations where worst land became unnecessary and stopped producing. So that was the only situation that he offers where rent didn't actually go up, which is pretty telling, uh, you know, to really that really flies in the face of David Ricardo's ideas because he just he just like totally abstracted from real life. And what Marx did and what Engels is doing here was to actually look at the numbers and actually look at the documents and actually look at testimonies to, to just show that no one actually has a grasp of this stuff. Like, sure, David Ricardo and Adam Smith could offer very seductive ideas about how the market worked, but that depended upon them abstracting from everyday life, abstracting from the economy in, in its real form, real everyday form, and instead just giving these generalized ideas about what the economy is, like with supply and demand, where Mark shows, he's already showed, how strange and absurd that is when you actually consider what it means in the economy itself. So Engels then continues on to say that even in like all of these other cases, uh, what remains consistent though is that if there is uh, more investment on land, on the best lands that yield rent, rent will go up. And that just seems to be a general phenomenon. As more money is invested on the land, landlords can charge more for the rent. And this, all this really means is that over time, landlords get more and more wealthy to do less and less work. And again, we're, like we see this everywhere, not just with agricultural production, with farming, but just where people live. Landlords are just raise the rent for no reason. And I'll just talk about Canada again. I remember in the last federal election, during one of the debates, one of the questions by one of these clowns was that um, was about moderating the rise in rent prices, to which the question was framed in such a way as to say that that would not be fair to landlords. And it's like, it's kind of an unfathomable way to frame that issue because what about all the people looking for places to live? They far outnumber the landlords. And I don't see why it's treated as though these are two equivalent people where somebody needs a place to live in order to survive and how that concern is somehow on the same page as a landlord being able to just up their prices so that they can earn maybe instead of a million dollars that year, maybe a million dollars and a million and fifty thousand dollars. They they were able to earn an extra fifty grand among all their properties. How that is at all the same thing as somebody having or not having a place to live, or a family having or not having a place to live. And it's just it just speaks to the way that this dynamic has been naturalized and just assumed to be the case. You cannot question the existence of rent. Anyways, I digress, and Marx comes back in this chapter after Engels' little consideration of the issues in Marx's tables to show that as capitalism progresses with the tendential fall in the rate of profit, this means that also the rate of rent will come down in relation to the absolute amount of capital invested. So it's going to go up on average just over time, but it's proportion to the amount invested because rent must come out of profit earned, out of the total surplus earned, which means that it's going to follow the same principles of the falling rate of profit. So again, 
The falling rate of profit doesn't mean profit comes down absolutely. Uh, profit might always be rising, but its relationship to the amount invested is going to come down, or it's going to have a smaller proportion in relation to that, which means that the rate of profit will come down. But while the rate of rent might go down, maybe the uh, price per acre might go up because less land is being worked on, and you know, you, you've heard this before. Now let's imagine a situation in which the actual price of goods uh, sold by the best land comes close to what is sold by the worst land. That would be a situation, hypothetically, where rent would approach zero because the situation is the same across the board, which means that there is not any extra earned to earn the landlord money. Now, I think it's important to say here that Marx is going to really problematize this to say that, well, what, like, what landlord is going to rent out their land if they aren't going to earn rent? Uh, like, that doesn't exist in the real world. And anyways... And by the real world, I mean capitalism. So there can be a situation in which rent approaches zero as the average price of goods sold on the best lands approaches the average price of the goods sold from the worst lands. And this can happen with improved machinery and techniques that will bring the costs down. So because the worst land uh, sets prices, and that price um, you know, is going gonna, is gonna to set the price for the entire market, as other in, as other lands become more efficient with the machinery they use and so on, what that's going to do is bring down the costs uh, across, across the board, make it easier to just make the same things. And so rent is just going to come down because the overall profit is coming down. Uh, it's proportion to the capital invested, which means that it's going to be approaching zero because the profit rate is slowly approaching zero the rent rate is going to slowly approach zero. So it appears here, and this is totally, might be totally contradictory to what anyone would think, certainly counterintuitive, is that property, what the land order uses to, that is what the landlord uses to transform the farmer's surplus product or value into rent, actually presents a barrier to the accumulation of rent. So, which seems totally it's totally absurd. How can the very means of acquiring rent, that is land, get in the way of rent? And it happens because of the nature or one of the contradictions of the capitalist economy where the profit rate tends to come down. And because rent is made out of profit, that means that rent is going to come down. So the very means to acquire rent is going to mark its own demise over enough time. Same thing with profit. The same way to acquire profit through industry is going to actually bring profit down, profit rate down. And that puts us here into chapter 44. Differential rent even on the poorest land cultivated, which might seem totally absurd to say now, like how can there be rent on the worst land? So there might be situations where it is possible that the worst land will bear rent and will not govern the market price. So there's like, let's say uh, there are a bunch of new immigrants in, on, in a country and the demand for corn goes up, but it makes the most sense not to invest on the worst land, but the better lands, that is rent bearing lands, to make them yield more. Because let's say, you know, let's say 
that this influx of immigrants happen to coincide with a new machine or a new technique that is going to allow the new lands to yield more capital, uh, to yield more crop. So in that case, all of a sudden, you're going to have the new lands working extra hard to be able to meet this demand because these people want all of this extra profit. And because there is a heightened demand, they're going to be able to raise their prices. Now, this means that prices are going to be able to be raised across the board. So even the worst lands are going to be able to raise their prices, which means that because they assuming they have the same costs because they haven't changed anything, they're actually going to be able to earn extra profit which means that they're actually going to be able to pay rent, some kind of a rent. And that's all he really says about that there, just kind of a short side possibility. And that puts us here into chapter 45, titled Absolute Ground Rent. So one of the other, I don't know if he goes so far as to call it a contradiction here, but one of the other barriers to capitalism in this situation is the existence of landlords themselves. Because as we know, Landlords aren't doing anything productive with their money. So the capitalist is earning money by exploiting labor, by exploiting laborers who are selling them their labor power. The capitalist then takes that uh, in terms of profit, puts some in, the, in their industry, and then pays some to the landlord and keeps some for themselves. This means that less money can actually be, actually be allocated back in terms of capital back into that industry. And so that means that less of what is exploited from laborers in terms of surplus value can actually go back into the production process that can work to make goods cheap for those workers to be able to, uh, so they can actually uh, pay less out of their own pocket to afford the goods that they are making. Now, to be clear, the situation is messed up either way for workers. They're going to get exploited and it can only, it can't, it's not sustainable. This is just a heightened intensified form of capitalism that is always going to be oppressive to workers. So landlords are kind of like leeches that, that are just sucking money out of, off of a vampire. So the capitalist is the vampire sucking money out of surplus value out of workers. And then the leech sits on the capitalist. It's like on their neck and just sucking their blood. So they're getting a little bit. Capitalist is earning a whole lot. But these leeches are just growing in size because they also have no costs. They're just like taking up all of this money and having absolutely no cost for it. And there's no production. They aren't putting any production in motion. They're, they're like super useless. So really though, to maximize production, which capitalists ostensibly want to do, it would mean getting rid of landed property, uh, property, property owned by landlords uh, who are, that's under the control of these unproductive landlords. So this could happen hypothetically if the landlord was the capitalist, you know, if they own the land that they're working on. However, the nature of capitalism doesn't permit this because capitalists always needs to expand. And so this means that they're going to need to take up residence in places that are already owned because the earth is only so big, only so much land can be cultivated and you can only do so much on one piece of land. And assuming you don't own everything, um, you're going to need to actually encroach upon someone else's land or work out a deal that that person is going to earn rent on what you are doing from what you are doing. Or there might be situations in which uh, a landlord has a bunch of land and chooses not to charge rent on some of them because they're so bad. 
they may they they make up for this by like overcharging on better lands like that might be a situation in which uh they aren't earning as much by the from the capitalists working on the worst land and those capitalists are able to put all their money back into production but that's not a real like because they're just overcharging somewhere else you know they aren't gonna out of the goodness of their heart they're not just going to stop charging rent or there could be a situation where market prices goes up and so capitalists has to invest more and expand still without yielding rent because you have to cultivate the worst land you know whatever so it is very possible that capital investments don't necessarily yield rent. And this happens on the worst land because maybe the demand has gone up at the same time. And so there's been a relative increase in both the capital investments and the demand, which is keep, keeping things at that so-called equilibrium. So, but in all of this though, there's a glaring issue and that's what landowner would actually release their land if it weren't going to earn rent or lease out their land if it wasn't going to actually earn rent. So we've been talking about this worse land that doesn't yield any rent. And it's like there's no land that's not being owned, of course, in some way, either by the state or by, uh, you know, banks or whoever is owning every piece of land. So what's going on there? Like what landlord is saying, nah, keep all the money. I don't want any rent because, you know, you have to just put everything back into the industry. Like a landlord might just sit on their hands and say, oh, well, maybe one day this is going to earn rent. You know, one day the demand is going to be so high that they're going to need to work on even worse land. And so this land is going to yield a little bit of surplus that can come to me, the landlord. But that just seems so absurd. Like if this is the case, the worst lands don't determine the price, but are a consequence of the realization of a certain price that would earn the landlord's rent. So let's say here that the landlord doesn't want to rent out their land until the price is such that of the good being sold, that it's going to earn them rent. So they aren't going to rent out their land uh, until corn is going to be worth a dollar a bushel, let's say. Until the market hits that price, they aren't going to rent out their land, which means that the land is only cultivated when it's going to yield a surplus to the extent that it can be transformed into rent. So the whole idea, which seems to make the most sense because this gets us around the problem of capital, of landowners just out of the goodness of their heart, renting out land that's gonna earn them nothing. This gets us around the issue. And this also raises another problem in that the price of goods is not actually set, which I intimated to a moment ago, isn't actually set by some kind of natural occurrence of worst land or unfertile or infertile land, but actually corresponds to the will of certain people who want to make a certain amount of money, which doesn't sound like a natural market price to me. And it comes back as well to the mystery of what the cost of land should be. How do they actually determine what the cost or value of land really is from which to be able to ascertain a rent price. And so the worst lands might be able to yield a rent if the cost of the goods that they make has already, because let because we're living in a world where land ownership is just naturalized and rent is naturalized. So we come to naturalize that the cost of goods has to reflect that. So it's going to come on to the consumer. The consumer is going to be expected not only to pay for the product, what it costs in terms of 
the, the machines that went into it, the raw materials and the labor, but also what needs to be allocated to somebody who's doing nothing to actually produce that good, which only dilutes the value of that product because the product's value is determined by the amount of labor, living labor that goes into it. If suddenly that price of the object is going up while the value remains the same, because it took only the same amount of living labor, but because a price has to be added to it to cover the cost of the unproductive labor of the, if I can even call it labor, the unproductive doings of the landlord, now the amount of value found in each product has actually gone down, which means that that product is actually going to be less valuable in the total scheme of like circulating dollar amounts, which is only going to encourage more crises and more collapses because the system is going to be founded upon less and less actual labor and more and more upon credit, upon speculation, because these rent prices aren't they don't correspond to anything natural in the economy. There's no real labor attached to determining the price of land. Uh, and yeah, and, and I'm verging into rambling here. But anyways, I think you get the idea. So this is what he means by the name of the chapter by absolute ground rent. So if all land somehow yields a rent, this would be absolute ground rent, which must exist or else no land would lease out their no, no landlord would lease out their land. And this is really what is special about agriculture. It forms such a monopoly that the product's end price has a rent already incorporated into it. It is rent that causes the rise in prices, not according to anything else. Or like rent plays a pretty significant part in a rise in uh, prices, which Adam Smith, David Ricardo totally did not grasp, had no idea how rent could have this effect because they thought that rent was just going to come after the price of the good is already set by the worst land. And that rent is only going to come out of the best lands, the most fertile lands. But if you're an intelligent person, or that's that's kind of harsh to say, I mean, I didn't think of this. Uh, well, Jesus, I don't consider myself particularly intelligent. In any case, there's a problem here. And that problem is that if there's land that just happens to not be owned, somebody could buy it up. And then because they aren't paying a rent, they could just undercut their opponents, their competitors who are having to incorporate the cost of rent into their prices because they aren't paying a rent. So that would seem to skew the whole thing because not all land has a rent attached to it. Now this problem can start, we can start to make sense of this issue when we remember that not it's not as though there's only agricultural land. There's also industrial land as well. So if we look at the entire economy as comprised of both agriculture and non-agricultural industries, we could see that uh, agricultural industries rely more heavily on labor than manufacturing in relation to investment of constant capital, of course. So within, like, you always need hands to do agricultural work. Like, it's going to be more difficult for agricultural farmers and capitalists to reduce the number of workers that they have. Whereas in industry, machines can really take over workers in ways that you can't really do uh, on a farm, at least at the time. You know, whether or not this is still true today, we could, we could poke holes in. But anyways, at the time, this was certainly the case. 
So this will mean, because more living labor is used in agriculture, that the value of the products produced in agriculture will be higher than those of non-agriculture or just in like other industries. But, the, but because the economy works in such a way as to have everything affect everything else, like it's not as though these two things are existing in a vacuum. They affect one another. The average price of profit is determined by assessing all industries, that is agriculture and non-agriculture. This means that agricultural goods will be sold below their value in accordance with the rest of the economy. Because it's easier outside of agriculture to bring down prices. But because everything works in a kind of somewhat holistic whole or in a cooperative fashion, all commodities exchange with one another, agricultural goods, because they correspond to an industry that depends more on living labor, it's going to be more difficult for them to bring down those prices. And so to be if, uh, competitive, they're going to only need to sell below their actual values because there's so much more value found in those products because there's so much more living labor, but they need to do that to remain competitive with the non-agricultural industries. And because objects are sold for less than their values, there is always going to be room within all agricultural industries, not just uh, on the best lands. Among all agricultural industries, when you actually compare it to non-agriculture, there's actually going to be room in all of those industries to raise prices to accommodate rent. And that is because there's so much more value found in those products that there's going to be more room to actually raise those prices because they can remain competitive with, they'll still be able to remain competitive with non-agricultural goods, which Ricardo doesn't even consider at all. And this is, this is one of the points that I think Marx could have really elaborated on, uh, but this is approaching the end. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't have time to really dig into the weeds of this issue here, really looking at the, the way that these different industries interact. We get a little bit of it, kind of a discussion of this in volume two, but there he's only considering like those industries that produce the means of production versus industries that produce the means of consumption and compares those two. So if we look specifically at the worst land, the worst, which would be the newest land, and let's say this is there's no rent, there's no landlord, they can compete insofar as almost all capital will be paid out on wages, for which exploitation plays a big role. So uh, you know other industries, other agricultural industries, uh, other farms, will have more established capital, constant capital, and so are going to be able to earn more profit which means that they are going to be able to actually remain competitive with a new, with the new land that a new person uh, sets up that they aren't paying rent on because they're going to be dishing out all of their money, most of their money on wages. So there's going to be lots of value produced there, but it's also going to cost a whole lot more and the profit that they're going to earn is a lot lower. So they won't be able to just come in and undercut everyone. And that will put us here into chapter 46 and also... That's the end of this episode. That'll put us into chapter 46, the rent of buildings, rent of mines, price of land. And that'll take us into episode nine. And yeah, so I hope you uh, enjoyed what I did here. I hope it, it was helpful. I tried to make it as clear as I could toward the end there, but if there's anything that was unclear, you can leave a comment. I'll try to get to it. 
uh, or someone else might be able to respond. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. If you listen to this on a podcast platform and you can leave a review, that'd be great. I read them all uh, a lot. I love reading words of encouragement, but also criticisms are great too. Uh, don't shy away from that. And yeah, on that note, take care.